Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions, capital raising, joint ventures, strategic alliances, real estate, affiliate and sponsorship deals, and more, including smaller deals that you can do without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for over 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. Ryan Tanson played a pivotal role in reviving his company's $21 million business and facilitating its eight-figure sale to a competitor in 2014. He leveraged his experiences to found Arcona and creating the Intentional Growth Network Framework to help entrepreneurs view and run their businesses as financial assets via educational training and fractional CFO services. He is on a mission to help entrepreneurs enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. All of those things, I love the impact part. Ryan has personally guided over 400 entrepreneurs through the Intentional Growth Academy and and has been involved in numerous transactions. He is a sought-after speaker, at industry conferences and CEO masterminds, including Vistage Worldwide and Entrepreneurs Organization. Additionally, Ryan hosts a popular intentional growth podcast with over 380 episodes, 520K downloads, and featuring well-known guests like Gino Whitman, ITR Economics, John Warlow, and the editors of Inc. Magazine and HBR. Welcome to the podcast. What's up, Corey? How are you, man? I'll tell you, man, it, it's great. We we had a fun pre-call getting to know each other and you're another podcaster and obviously this eight-figure exit experience and how, and how you help people do deals now is going to be all a lot of fun to talk about. But before we get to all of that, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is it's probably not providing coaching, mentoring, outsource CFO services and selling businesses at, at that age, but you tell me. <laughs> I'm laughing because I actually, around that age, I took a like a career assessment or whatever the heck you do when you're that age. And it was like yeah. a bricklayer. Actually, <laughs> I will okay. never forget that. And, but actually, it was right around that age when my dad actually started the business. And he would, it was zero employees. He mortgaged our house to buy a couple hundred grand worth of old Panasonic copiers with no plan other than that. And he he started, he worked all day and he'd come back at nine o'clock at night and I'd stay up late and just hear the play-by-play. I remember when he got the Canon license. I remember when he launched a second location. And that's when it became my sport, man, in business anyways. And no idea what I wanted to be, but my dad, I was never really good at school. So the fact that I teach now is just hilarious to me. And, but he always said, as long as you can provide value, be nice. And as long as you can sell stuff, you'll be just fine. And because that was his way of, I think, giving himself the validation because he barely graduated high school. So it's a little bit of talking about his health through, through me. Love it. Well, there's this saying around the entrepreneurial community that the A students end up working for the C students. Well, honestly, man, I, I see it because like I, Corey, for the first, like I probably 50 to hundred episodes, I'd ask people like, how did you decide to become an entrepreneur? And no one said, I never decided to be. <laughs> so it was always this accident. So I quit asking people why they decided to be. It was like, so yeah, I think it just kind of people fall into it, man. 
That's funny. One more question looking back. What was your first deal of any type? It could be something small when you were a kid or early in your career. Anything that comes to mind that was a deal? I was slinging uh, and selling lawn mowing uh, business. I was uh, cutting grass by the age of eight or nine or something like that. Love it. Love it. All right. So listen, let's talk about this experience. It's mentioned in your bio about when you came in to your dad's company. Let's talk a little bit about more where that was. And obviously the same figure exit. We talked about where it was. We talked about where it ended up in the bio, but obviously there's a journey in between that <laughs> to create that enterprise value. So definitely want to hear more about that. What part do you want to dive into? Because uh, I'll, I'll give you the kind of the container around it, Corey, and we can pull whatever string you want. Yeah, I love the personal story of what got you involved. And then and then in terms of its growth, was, was there an intention to create enterprise value and sell it? Is it just what happened? What was that journey? There's the, before we get into deal aspects, just this, what's the journey? What's the story? Yeah, you tell me to stop or slow down, but because I, I do it quite a bit, and so sometimes people that's a lot. But it all. So I watched my dad at the nine o'clock at night. I watched him scale the company. He was a hustler, man. He was the t- t- typical copy salesperson, like just four hundred phone calls, fifteen appointments, eight net news, five proposals, three closes, fifty grand in revenue, and it worked. Yes. <laughs> I watched him do that. I. I you name the job, Corey. I did it. You know, moving the buildings when he was moving to taking out the trash, doing meter reads before they actually plugged into the internet and calling people to get, hey, by the way, Corey, what's the page count? And like, wait a second, I have to go do something that's inconvenient so you can bill me? Hang up. <laughs> and so I was 16 doing that. Started drowning my uh, drowning in uh, my suit selling copiers when I was 19. And so did uh, a bunch of interns throughout college swore on my absolute living grave. I'd never go work for him because, but he went through this whole personal journey where he was distant from the company while I was in college, divorced with my mom, a bunch of other stuff. And what happened was when I graduated college in 09 and yeah. everybody knows what happened then. And the I was the only one of my friends that had any job offers because I was a salesperson and I had 15 job offers. I'm like, yeah, I'm willing to work for a thousand bucks a month. Everybody's like, sure, come work for us. My dad's GM convinced me because I was like, I don't want to sell copiers. They're not fun. They're not technology. They were still blinded. Like it's, you could duplicate your way into productivity. But so I got convinced to go join in 09. What happened was my, because my dad had been distant, there was so much cash flow, Corey, in that business on the 20 million in revenue ish. When I started 21 million, 8 million is equipment. And then 12 million was services, really high profit margin on services. Like in the whole thing at inverse with the equipment. So they, we were essentially giving shit away to then get the the service contracts, but we're sitting in the bank in the CPA meeting. So I'm in the bullpen. I got to outsell everybody because everybody thinks I'm going to be entitled person that the second generation, that kid. And so I crush it. I absolutely crush it. And again, I can say that because in sales, I, there was no subjectivity. It was very objective. You either do or don't, don't sell something. Yes. But we're sitting in the bank meeting, the CPA meeting. My dad pulls me into everything, all the meetings, which I really enjoyed. But like I'm pulling him into deals. So he's getting reinvigorated back in the business. But we're sitting there in December, right around this time in 2009, we found out we lost 940,000 bucks on 21 million in revenue. Wow. And given the fact that my dad was a copier sales guy with not a financial background or even a college background, he, when he scaled so fast, Corey, he was, he actually funded the company for 12 years by financing receivables. And I uh, could go on to the, uh, yeah, dude, I could go on to this for two, di- two days, yeah. but we had no line of credit. So we had to turn the business around for six years without a line of credit. So we ended up selling two branches for cash. I built out the managed IT service offering the software automation side, and then we rebranded so we could be a B2B tech player. So we got to this point where it was really healthy. 
of a business just incorrectly capitalized. I was running the company that the, the operations he was still doing with like the bank and the CPA. And then we could never get alignment on what, cause he, he's like, I want more money. I want my distributions. I don't want to talk about copiers anymore. And so like we went through a year and a half of he, him wanting to sell in the whiplash for the executive me. You can't steer a ship if you don't know where you want to go. Are we selling? Not selling. You're taking distributions? Not. Long story short, after a year and a half of talking to every CPA banker in Vistage, no one could, no one sat us down and said, Ryan, Corey, what do you guys want? How do we get the business as a vehicle to get you there? And to your question of, we were solving for annual yes. cash flow, Corey. So like the K1, how much in cash through salary, perks, and distribution can we suck out of this company instead of, yeah. hey, if we invest over here, this is the return. Got it. Long story short, pin up three local competitors, sold it to the highest purchase price, and I had to fire 60 out of my 90 employees, pay 53% in taxes, pay off a couple million dollars in debt. And then 10 years ago, I was like, what the heck was that? So that is how and why I'm here. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Listen, there's most entrepreneurs are running their businesses that way, right? They're trying to minimize taxes. They're trying to maximize distributions. They try and they don't, and they don't realize the impact. And, and listen, it, it's fine if it's a conscious choice, right? That you're going to run it that way. And it's fine. Not everybody's got to scale and build enterprise value. There's no, I actually think sometimes there's pressure to do that in ways that mm -hmm. cause bad incentives. But, but it's the fact that so many entrepreneurs, like it's not even, they, they're not even making a, cho a choice from options, right? They don't even know, oh, wait a second, if I did this differently, and, think about it's like the, marriage, it's like the matrix. I can build enterprise value. Corey, like the way I like describe it, it's like when you see the matrix, it's like you're finally unplugged. And like when I say when you're plugged in, it's you're solving for revenue, optimizing yeah. for gross profit, whatever the, whatever the margins are, and just hoping that there's going to be ca cash in the checking account when you need to hit payroll. Yes. <laughs> and, and when you want your distributions, but there's no like, unified plan which is why everybody's solving for the cash flow and the tax not because like how would you expect anybody to make a conscious choice i spent we can go through all the things that i did to help turn it around but we spent 300 and some thousand bucks on a new erp system yep. and think about this like the mindset of growing equity value long term versus solving for cash now think about this i always joke around like can you imagine the enterprise sales rep of hey ryan and Corey, it's three hundred thousand dollars to build this erp system and you're going to lose half your admin department because they're going to hate it so much. You're not going to have any visibility into your clients for 18 months. And it'll take twice as long, twice as expensive. And all the while, it's going to cost you 300 grand. And you're like, wait a second. How about I just keep the 300 grand and we don't do that? <laughs> Versus now flip the equation and say, hey, Ryan and Corey, if you invest 300 grand, it's an add back. So it's a use of cash, but we're looking at normalized EBITDA as one of the two numbers that we value companies on, not net income. We're not valuing a company based on net income. So why are, that's for the taxes. So it's an add back on EBITDA and it's going to grow your multiple, which is the second number. Then it's a whole thing. I'm absolutely convinced, Corey, that entrepreneurs are willing to do hard work if they can see the outcome of that. But if you can't right. see the outcome, why the hell would you do it? That's right. That's hundred percent. So listen, we have listeners of the, on this podcast who are super sophisticated on deals, and we have some newer folks who are learning about deals. So when we talk about normalized, talk to us a little bit about normalized EBITDA and, and mm -hmm. what that means in the context of a deal. So I'll talk about from our experience, reduce net income so you don't pay taxes. And the, most of the time, it's the horrible gift of around this time of the holidays for, hey, by the way, you owe 400 grand with no cash in the bank. And so instead of net income, well, like... What I always say when I'm doing my keynotes or my workshops is if we pulled out everybody's net income, you know what that tells me about the business? 
Nothing. Because it's what happens, Corey, over the last decade, I am absolutely convinced that business owners and entrepreneurs can tell an amazing story of where have they been, where are they, and where they want to go. Net income can't reflect the story. So then what we say, okay, let's let if we have two numbers that value a company, normalized EBITDA, which is a so I'll break this down. So it's a proxy for annual cash flow. So we have one number, which is the and we need to figure out whoever owns this asset, what is the annual cash flow that's coming out of that's available to anybody. And then we're gonna take in times that by what everybody calls the multiple, which in the simplest way is the number of years of cash flow that normalized EBITDA that a buyer or investor is willing to give based on the risk of that cash flow. So I always like to say, so Corey, if you say to me, Ryan, I'm willing to give, if, if intentional growth is doing a million dollars in cash flow and Corey says, hey, I'm going to give you a three, Ryan. You're saying, I really believe your story of years one, two, and three, but years four or five, man, I don't get it. But if you give me, is someone else willing to give me a four or five, they're believing that story and they're willing to wait five years for that cash flow. So that normalized EBITDA has all, it, it eliminates all the noise of that ERP system ad back or the boats and cars and cabins my dad had. Right or severances or all that stuff. So we can get to the clean number that it's one or two numbers. So let's pay attention yeah. to it. Yeah. And it's interesting, but just to jump in for folks who, who are less experienced, normalized EBITDA can, can go one of a few directions. In other words, sometimes there's expenses that an owner is going to put through the business that right will come out when, when they're gone. So that, that'll be a positive add back. But on the flip side, sometimes a buyer will come in and say, wow, your compliance or your financial systems or your whatever are really weak. And so we, we, it's going to cost us more money to, to run that. So we're going to be putting in a, an expense factor that's not in your P&L mm-hmm. currently, right? Because you, you're not doing this well enough and we need to do it right. It can cut either way, which is why it's very different than uh, than that income, especially if you're running the business much more like Ryan was talking about and many entrepreneurs do like his father was. Now, obviously, if you're one of those rare company that is, companies that is actually running the business in a way that a, that, a, that a buyer to, to build enterprise value and to take into account all these things and not to just save taxes and maximize distributions. I've got a normalization that normally has to happen. And, and 100%. And Corey, I can shoot you a PDF. I've got a cool exercise that I do in all the Vistage workshops of positive, negative, or neutral ad back so that we can get to that million bucks. So I'll, I'll show you the PDF and you can put that in your show notes. That's great. Yeah, that's great. Well, we can, yeah, that, that's excellent. Yeah, because it's that's an important point that some people don't understand. All right. So Let's go back to the case study of your of, of your father's business, your, your business, because there was a shift there, right? And and a lot of companies can't make that shift, right? A lot of companies just don't do that well. And sometimes that provides an opportunity to to buy them on the cheap or they're, they're just not saleable at all. So what are some of the other things that you did to move this from what some people refer to as a lifestyle business? I actually don't love that term for it, because I actually think every business should be a lifestyle business, meaning that even if you want a big scale, it should support your lifestyle. Family, family yeah. offices buy companies for their lifestyle so they can clip the distributions. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, if, it, if it's an asset, it should be providing for you wealth wise right. and impact wise whatever it should satisfy the ownership's group's goals. What ESOP have different goals and private equity have different goals and family offices have different goals than right. partners. And so I just, I want to be very clear for you and the listeners too. We had no idea what the hell we were doing the whole time. So like the whole six years, like the one thing that actually helped Corey is that we had a bank with a gun to our head. Yeah. They were under an FDIC covenant. They had a bunch of 
crap loans. So they were making 750 grand a year off of fees off of us. So they actually couldn't cancel us. So they needed the financing, the receivables income to get turned around. So it was literally a race to who can get better. But why I say that is because most privately held business owners don't have a mandate of a timeline. Private equity, it's like, Internal rate of return over seven years. And every yep. single day, I would need to know the trailing 12 months of EBITDA because we have an internal rate of return for some company. Yep. I say that because that's why I'm such a proponent of come up with your target equity valuation at a point in time, regardless of what you want to do, because it'll give yep. you the timeline and the discipline. So when I say we had no idea what the hell we want to do, but I know I needed to hit $240,000 in payroll every other Thursday. <laughs> and like, <laughs> that was it. And I needed to pay all of our family bills. And my dad had a lot of stuff with the bank, with the timeline and the mandate. It forced the discipline. Yeah. But I still never understood the valuation until after the fact. So I'll, I'll, I'll explain to some of the stuff that I did that actually was valued, even though it wasn't intentional, which is why- yeah promote uh, intentionality now. Yes. It was a copier declining industry. Like the margins sure. of the equipment disappeared. We were literally having to sell stuff for negative margin. We were in order to get the 50% equipment fine or the equipment maintenance. So then it was like, okay, we got telecom companies coming in. We got cloud hosting companies coming in, okay, IT companies. So I had to diversify our product offering. So I, we, I was going for profit per customer instead of just equipment sale margin. So like the Minnesota yeah. wild is one of my favorite examples. It was like from a, like a creative structure, like we were the full technology provider of the Minnesota wild. So I bundled in office equipment, staff with their print center, cloud hosting, all their workflow document management services. We co-branded and we actually had a managed IT help desk system where they had their tier one help desk with their people. And then they yeah. would, we would be their tier two, tier three, bundled it in on a multi-million dollar contract, financed the CapEx, wrapped it in on a 48 month equipment lease where that or equipment financing where every single of their 330 employees we knew every Corey works for the minnesota wild it's another 300 bucks a month and we added to the lease so it took the buyer a couple appointment a couple meetings with 10 people to understand how that contract was built no one could steal the client and when we sold we literally took our couple thousand clients or it was like three thousand clients and said here you go it was like a CSV download from our ERP system and said, we know that there's value because they can't cancel. It's right. all bundled in and protected. We wanted to have a moat around that client and we didn't want a telecom company to take it. We didn't want, so there was all that stuff that made sense. And then we had to build the operations to get there while the gun to our head from the bank was there. So like, yeah, there was like this, and I think this is why I go back to the innate nature of entrepreneurs. People know what their clients want generally. And then they, it's how do you organize those products or services around that client to make it sustainable, predictable, and transferable cash flow into the future to yes. increase that normalized EBITDA and de-risk it and therefore increase that multiple. Yeah. And that's so I want you to say that last statement again more slowly and, and break it down because that was gold right there. Right? <laughs> By the way, I want to make sure I, people caught that. I had one of my buddies, he goes, Your podcast is the only one I don't have to listen to on 1.5. <laughs> So I wanted to, like, I'll say what I did by my nature, by yeah. just common sense was do what everything I just said, which is I wanted to protect my, I wanted to enhance my client's experience Yes, while also making our business better. And I think everybody listening in probably knows ideas on how to do that. But what actually is also the benefit is by protecting that and building that 
client related experience, I wanted to create sustainable, predictable, and transferable cash flow into the future. So that way, predictable and transferable transferable cash flow. flow. That was the phrase that I really want to focus on. And what it does to the value is if we take that million dollars in normalized EBITDA, so let's say it's a million dollars in cash flow, by doing everything we just talked about, it could go from a three to a five multiple because Corey's willing to believe my story that says, hey, Corey, do you want this contract that's $3 million and you can take that cash flow? I call it like the baton, Corey. Like, you want my company? Here it is. And you take that that million dollar baton, that cash flow baton, and you can run with it without me. No earnout, no job, no escrow. And then we get into the whole deal structure where then all cash is ideal. But yep. like every single thing that is risky with that future cash flow reflects in the multiple and the deal structure. And I know you know that because that's what you're talking about all the time. But like I lived it and the crazy part is it's all by accident. <laughs> like, <laughs> but just wait, but I, I don't want to discredit too much because we knew it, but I just didn't understand how to justify with financial metrics and valuations. And I think a lot of people right. can I relate mean, to that. It was right business moves to make, but to relate it to what you later about. No, I totally get it. It, it. It's interesting because I've been joking a lot with my, we have a lot of clients in the wealth management space and it's a great contrast to the example of this versus I always joke with them that we largely provide a very similar service, right? We provide as law, especially the kind of law I do, right? Working with corporate deals and stuff like that, that working with sophisticated high-end clients to provide them with high-end customized advice on important things in their lives, Right. What do wealth management people do? They work with mm-hmm. high-end, sophisticated people, right, to help them achieve high-end things in their life, the significant money at stake. It's very similar. But the investment advisors have a way better model than we do as lawyers, right? And it's because of exactly what you said, right? As lawyers, we bill, a lot of us bill hourly or we bill fixed fees or things like that. And there are reasons for it. And I won't get too much in the business model. And I'm not asking anybody for, to cry for me because I've done very well. I'm very happy. But I'm talking about in terms of business model, and that's what I joke with my clients about, because what they have is they get paid a percentage of assets under management, it's recurring revenue, it's paid in advance quarterly, and it's pulled automatically out of a custodial account. They get paid out of Schwab or Fidelity. Or and their clients or don't even see it usually. Like, I mean, yeah, it's, and it, it just comes off, right, out of the investment amount. The biggest difference, because essentially we're providing the same type of high-level customized a service to, to 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 successful people. The difference is their business model has that repeatable, right? Sustainable, predictable, and cash flow. Yeah. Law firms generally, you'll hear expressed in terms of revenue multiples. If you know anything about multiples, you never want to do it on a revenue multiple. So if I back the normal multiples on a law firm, you're looking at about maybe four four to five times EBITDA on a on a law firm uh, if they're well if they're well run could be lower. And the deals we're doing in the wealth management space. They get right twelves, right? And yeah. even so you're not talking about one or two turns. You're talking about double or triple. You're talking about significantly different multipliers on that. I got yeah, yeah, totally yeah. because of the difference in the business model. I got a comment on this too, Greg. Amen to everything you said. And I'm seeing the same thing because I got a couple of buddies in wealth management that own some firms, and I'm seeing the teens right now. And yep. but I think what's interesting, so as all these kind of light bulbs have gone off over the last decade since I went through that. I was at this m a conference in Chicago. It's where I met a bunch of people from, oh my gosh, what the heck was the association? m and Alliance. You probably know a bunch of these people. Anyways, doesn't matter. I was sitting in this, there was like probably 400 people in this conference and I'm sitting in this private equity breakout 
Corey, yep. and this got six, seven, maybe even longer than that. Anyways, I'm watching the, these five private equity people sit on the stage yep. and they're talking about asset classes yep. and they're talking about services, healthcare, energy, manufacturing, SaaS, e-commerce. And I'm sitting there going, well, they're like playing a four-dimensional chess game while I was playing checkers because they're sitting there talking about my business while that I worked my entire life at for 80 hours a week, like an asset class while they're sitting there going, we're going to just deploy money over here, deploy money over here. And they didn't do all that hard work I just described. And I'm like, who gets it? And but, but why I brought this up based on your comment is I like to, in my workshops, I always like to say to people like, put our investor hat on. If you, if Corey and I have a million dollars to invest, and this is why I do the build up to get people to understand weighted average cost of capital, because if you and I have a million dollars, if we put it into a CPA firm, all yep. those people have to stay there and there's no contracts, or we could put it in a SaaS company where it's reoccurring. Like, like everybody I think gets this in their soul. But like we get it blinded because it's our professional identity, but it's, but as an investor, should we put it here? Should we put it there? Should we put it there? Cause we want more than a million dollars and what kind of risk are we willing to take? And then you can stick back and say, what industry and business model? And that's why I, when I interviewed the Craig from the, the Pepperdine Capital Markets study on my podcast, we break down, like he's got that study that they do once a year where they break down industries and sizes and the multiples because it has to do with risk. Love it. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can tell you about an incredible resource my team and I have put together for you. Secrets of Deal-Driven Growth, Creative Ways to Grow Your Business Even in Challenging Times is a powerful ebook that helps you take DealQuest podcast episodes and apply them to your own life and business. This is the ideal tool for anyone looking for creative ways to grow as dealmakers, and you can get yours now. It's as easy as heading to coreycuffer.com slash workbook and downloading your copy. While you're there, you can also consider joining our dynamic deal-driven community of founders, experts, small business owners, and entrepreneurs. Now back to the show. So let's talk about, you've alluded to some of the principles and we know some of them come out of that experience of your dad's business and selling it and what you learned there. So tell us a little bit more specifically about what the Intentional Growth Academy is and, and the work you do there and how that works and who, and who are the clients. All of this stemmed from when I got out, Corey, like I'm young enough where I first of all didn't become financially free. A lot of people are blind. And by the way, you and I both would know what net proceeds are and that's what matters. <laughs> and, so, and I wasn't the majority owner of the company. And so my father retired and I had to go essentially figure this out. But one thing that I didn't want to do right off the bat is I didn't want to become part of the problem. Like I was sitting there going like, how in God's name did that happen to us? We were in Vistage. We're 21 million in revenue. I have the top CPA, attorney, bank, all these people. I really didn't have the people like you. There was no podcast back then. You know what I mean? So that I, I didn't have exposure to this stuff. And I'm like, I had a couple of offers from like private equity, investment banking. But once you go through that, you get the scars. You're like, come work for us. And I'm yeah. like, but then, so I'm going to go take advantage of people that don't know this stuff. And so I'm just this, from redesigning comp plans my whole life, I one of my intense passions is understanding alignment of incentives. Yes. And so like when I spent 10 years trying to figure out like how can, I didn't want to go monetize the business owner who are my peers in a way that felt gross. I wanted to be able to look myself in the face, in the mirror. And so where that led me to was, I want to teach people how to fish. 
so that they can get empowered. And I just built the material that I wish I would have known, Corey. <laughs> and so it started off as me synthesizing a bunch of material. And then it came, I landed on these five principles and I call it a framework. And the, these five principles in the content are in this online academy or in a boot camp. And I call it a framework because as a business owner, I didn't want to be told what to do. I wanted to have a question to say, okay, Corey, should I hire a president for 250 grand or should I buy that company? Should I take a distribution, buy that building? And I want to know what it means to me. And I don't want you to tell me, but I want you to help me go from the legal perspective. What does this mean for the deal structure? But I want to take that power back. So I took these five principles that we can dive into, but I took these five principles and I, I created a training program for middle market entrepreneurs. So when I, and I like how you said lifestyle is a weird word too. Like essentially the people that there's now been 600 people that have been through it. And it's not people backed by private equity or venture yeah. capital. These are people like my dad and I, which yeah. is founders, multi-generational, but it's usually a few partners or a few owners that haven't had the injection of the mindset of the asset value, like we're talking about. And yeah. so I spent the last 10 years essentially building out this material and, and what the market has told me is very digestible and very, and I have people that own marketing agencies going, I understand weighted average cost of capital. <laughs> and, but then at the same time, I have other people that have done multiple, uh, there's one guy went through 14 rollups and sold the, that one IPO. And he was like, oh my God, I learned a lot. And my point is it's this slow drip through these five principles. And it started up, so it's five principles, it's online. So we have an online academy because yeah. I started the actual uh, Kona and intentional growth in 28, 2019 as an in-person bootcamp. And March 13th, 2020, my business model evaporated. So I had to digitize it. So now I've got an online in-person, I've got people that will buy a private bootcamp. For, I got a client right now that they're looking at four families are buying a private bootcamp for their four family shareholders. Or we had a couple of weeks ago, we had 35 business owners between couple million in revenue and 300 million in revenue. And, but the common theme was, what's this, how, how do I figure out what is my target equity valuation? How does all this stuff work? And how do I get there making the right decisions in the right timeline? Yeah. Love it. Love it. And see, so you said these are middle market entrepreneurs generally founders, things like that. What, what do you find? So uh, I often talk about mindset on the podcast. Let's start at the mindset level, right? Because uh, you can agree or disagree, but I think everything starts with mindset, right? No matter what information you're going to teach them, anything new information that they have, whatever, if they don't have the right mindset around it, then what use is it going to be? So what are some of the mindset things that come up or other things that may block folks from really being able to do limiting beliefs, anything like that? Because mm -hmm. us humans get in our own way sometimes. Oh, uh, <laughs> amen. I've lived it in so as I go into this, I want people to know that I learned this all the really hard way. <laughs> And so also a couple comments is, so the five principles, the first one starts with your vision. What do you want and why? Because we can, you and I both know we could build a three financial model to something, but if we don't know where we're going. So here's how I start the academy, the workshops, my keynotes is I actually, Corey, I pull up a picture of a cabin on a, on a river because it's, that's my goal. I live over in Stillwater, Minnesota. I want to have a big house on the river and I go, should I buy this? What does everybody think? And people are like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, what if I can't afford it? Yeah. What if my wife doesn't want to do that? I'm like, context matters. And so I say that we have to know what we want and we have to understand where we're going. And the yeah. thing is, if we don't, that's why Bo Burlingham, his book, Finish Big, is what set me on my entire journey. He's been on my podcast a couple of times. I was a keynote at the Small Giants Conference this year. It was a personal, personal, really cool experience because 
it's full circle. I say that because three out of four people regret the sale, even though it doesn't matter about the money because they didn't know why they were doing this. And people could, and we, there's a whole lot of why. Is it culture? Is it legacy? Is it money? There's, it's so multidimensional. But what I say is that the goal really matters. So then I say, if we want to go, I'm in Minnesota, if I want to go to Florida, when I ask entrepreneurs, well, what's your goal? When people go, I want to, here's my goal. And it's always revenue. It's like, I want to go from 5 million to 10 million, 10 million to 25 million. And then I immediately cut that out and say, my father and I owned a $21 million business that lost $940,000 in 09. And if we would have sold the company in 2009, we would have owed the bank two and a half million bucks. Who cares? <laughs> and so like we had 115 employees. So what we could do is we could go to Vistage and go, we do 21 million in revenue and have 115 employees. But if we shift our mindset, boom, back to your word. Yep. And we say, I want a $12 million equity valuation in 2030, now we have the right goal because yes. now if we think about the goal, and when I said I'm a fanatic about incentives, because I built out a comp plan for 24 salespeople that sell copiers and I can watch, if you have the wrong comp plan, you could, it really sucks. And so everybody that's running EOS puts their VTO of all the revenue or, and so, so then every, we can have horrible growth that doesn't create value, that pisses money away. So if we take the target equity valuation, and the timeline, we can reverse engineer the three financial statements and we can say, okay, because there are three levers we can pull. How do we increase that normalized EBITDA? Yeah. How do we then decrease the risk of that cash flow by creating sustainable, predictable, transferable cash flow, therefore increasing the multiple? So yeah. increase the EBITDA, increase the multiple, and pay down debt. Those three, if those are our KPIs, we can get to that point B. Do an ESAP, do a private equity, internal transfer, gift it to your kids. I had this one guy go, I want 360 degrees of options when I get to point B. And it's like, great. But he, he, and it's not just, if I say, if you say, hey, I want to go to Florida, it's like, hey, that's a big state. You go into a motel, you go into a hospice, you go into a five-star resort, who you want to be with. Like we have to think about that whole goal. And if the target equity valuation is the goal, we know that we're going to have the options instead. Like when my father and I went to sell and this is, there's a lot behind this, but I had three offers, Corey. The only offer that satisfied our financial targets is the one that we took. And I had to go back to my office and I had to fire 60 out of my 90 employees. And they were my college friends, my family. And they gutted everything I said about the Minnesota wild. They, every, they, they gutted our entire company so we could hit our financial targets in the timeline. The other two offers were on the cash flow valuation and it didn't satisfy the timeline. So if I would have had to have the cash flow valuation, I would have had to wait another five years. And now we were trapped. I didn't know any of this stuff, but I, like, so long story, long way of saying target equity valuation at a point in time. So that way you, it's based on the cash flow valuation and then you have all the options in the world to do whatever you want. Love it. All right. Let's run through quickly the other four principles. So the first one is your vision. What do you want out in that? There's a, well, there's a key component of this one is separate your job, your W-2 paycheck. Do you get an actual paycheck from your ownership role? You have to yep. separate those two because people say, I want out and they don't even know if they want out of their ass or their job. So yep. your vision, what do you want from your job, your culture, everything? The second one is your financial targets. 
Yeah. So what is your target equity valuation and the desired distributions on the way there? So if you want distributions on the way to that target equity valuation, let's think about it because then we can't reinvest in the company. So your vision, financial targets. Third one is your exit options. And there's five of them that we, we cover, but it's internal transfers, ESOPs, acquisition entrepreneurs, private equity, and strategics. Every one of those, the different deal structure, I know you talk about those a lot, will impact your legacy, your role. It'll impact first two principles. So then once those, so those first three, my definition of intentional growth is purposeful action towards a very clearly identified outcome. So those first three clarify that clearly, that, that identified outcome. So then principle four is grow value. Now with that goal in mind, let's invest in the areas in the business that de-risk the cash flow so we get a return on our money. And then principle number five is hire the right team of advisors, like everybody listening in and you, Corey, and the wealth managers. I make a joke at the, the keynotes. I say, you know what most entrepreneurs do? And this guy included, I'm pointing to myself, I would bring in our, our advisors and I'd be like, most entrepreneurs do. It's like hiring a travel agent and refusing to tell them where you want to go and getting <laughs> pissed that they don't understand. <laughs> so if you flip that and say, okay, here's where I want to go. Think if I said to you, I want to go from a million dollars in normalized EBITDA to two million over the next six years. I want to go from a five multiple, so a $5 million valuation to then a six multiple, so a $12 million valuation in the next six years. And my goal, my first ideal goal, Corey, would be to do an ESOP. If I can't do that, then I'd like to transfer uh, part of it to my managers and my kids. And then what I can do then is then hire all my team of advisors to say, okay, how about tax plan, estate plan, deal structure, tax, all that stuff can wrap around the goal. Yeah. Because that's wildly different than maximizing purchase price to a strategic buyer that's in your industry. Yeah. Now, that's powerful. And it's something that I, I always joke that I ask some questions that a lot of lawyers don't often ask. When somebody comes to me with a deal, often my question to them is, okay, why are you doing the deal now? <laughs> Right. I love it. Now, as I, that's a question that a lot of my colleagues don't ask. I'm not looking to criticize anybody, but it's just most lawyers, you're hired, clients says they want to do a deal. They get well, the paperwork and they start the, doing their work. What, do you have a term sheet yet? What's the deal terms? Let's let's draft the documents. But I have that kind of strategic consulting relationship with my clients. And so I, I want to know why. First of all, to tell you the truth, even just to draft and, and implement the deal, the why is important because it tells me what's important in the negotiation, what I emphasize in drafting, whatever. But even on a deeper level, I want to make sure my clients are doing deals for the right reasons. And even though I do deals every day and I preach uh, deal deal driven growth on this podcast, it's not always right to do a deal. And it's and it might be right time to do a deal, but not that deal. And I'm not talking about the lawyers who are deal killers who slow things down because they don't understand that deals have for to the, have a rhythm. For the wrong reasons, right? They, they got to balance opportunity and risk. I'm talking about much more so from the point of view of the client and what's their motivation to do, do, do the deal. And some folks, still, they say, they're saying to me similar to what you're talking about. I want to add revenue. Okay, why? <laughs> you know? And you know what? And I know what I, what I 100% agree with you, Corey. And what I think and the reason I like what I do is because I want people to understand how freaking lucky they are to find you. Like what happens is 98% of advisors are just looking to pay the bills. And like, it takes a lot of guts to potentially derail a client engagement because you're saying, you know what? This is probably not going to make you happy. And, and by the way, you probably make a lot of money on a transaction, but you might, but to, sure. to be able to say, no, this is not right for you. 
I want people like when they empower, when they're empowered by understanding this, then they can find the right people with you, like you, and then they know why they're working with you. And it's, and it just makes everything more fluid. It's just, it's the amount of stuff that they call it the deal train, right? It leaves the station and everybody's looking at the pocketbooks and yep. like, it takes a lot of momentum. Or it takes a lot of, I don't even know what you want to call it to stop that inertia. And for most people, I have 380 podcasts where people have been on the podcast where they're like, I'm worth a hundred million that or a billion or whatever. And they're miserable because they're Charles Schwab ETF portfolio that is colorful and no one needs them anymore. Right. And they have no purpose and no identity afterwards. And it's like after the five or 10 million bucks, what are you actually solving for? And people haven't usually thought about it. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's so powerful. And we've had some folks on the show in the past talking about even folks, and you, you alluded to it earlier, who's to sell their business. And if they don't have a, a, a vision, a goal, a purpose of what's going to happen after that, usually they'll regret it. And then they'll dabble around, maybe investing in other people's businesses. That will be very satisfying and maybe they're not very good at it. So it's, yeah, it's really fascinating. Yeah. So I'm a big, I'm a big internal, make sure that everything we do in business, whether it's deals, whether it's starting a business, whether it's growing a business, whether it's hiring the people, whatever is aligned. Like, why are we, I just see too many entrepreneurs who there's the old joke, right? That an entrepreneur is somebody who will work 80 hours for themselves to avoid working 40 hours for someone else. And there's some truth in that. Me, including me. <laughs> yeah, especially there's some truth, in that, especially in the beginning when you're building whatever. And that does show a mentality, which I do believe in. But at the same time, I think the ideal, the, the best entrepreneurs talk about the vision and the goal in mind, even outside the context of deals can help you get there. They're, they're, I'm always looking at, hey, how do I create my ideal life now? And how do my businesses support me to do that? And by the way, we need other ways to grow insane, and, and serve clients and do a great job while doing that. Part of that is systems and teams and, and building great people and putting in the right, all that stuff. But, but too many people get lost in, they're not related to how their business growth impacts their life. And a lot of times they'll get to a certain point later on, they're like, why have I worked this way, this crazy? And look what I've given up in my life. And I'm not it's, committed it, to that in any way. It's the definite, it's, it's actually insane, in my opinion. Yeah. It's, and again, this all goes back to my child. Like, why? I was a horrible student. I got a D in accounting. <laughs> this is my worst grade in college. Because I'm like, why does this matter? Because debits and credits, blue book. And I'm like, mm, I need to know the why. And I watched my dad have more material stuff than he could ever use. And he was literally trying to buy a hole in his heart. The good news is for all the listeners, my dad and I are unbelievably close. He moved four minutes down the road for me. He's hanging out with my kids, my grand, his grandkids all the time. And it's, how do we have to go through that much crap to figure that out? Yeah. It's so ridiculous. And then the cool part is if you can figure out and measure the value, the intrinsic value of your cash flow valuation while you own it, private equity firms and ESAPs do it all the time. And what if you're financially free? It's just illiquid. Then you're yes. like, it designed the entire life around the business, but don't just hope that your company's worth what you need it to be worth. So it's a, it's the both, it's the both and, right? Like we have to live in all of this because I don't know, man, like I just watch these people on my podcast and that's my biggest blessing. I'm like, wow, you're 30 years old and you're miserable. No one likes you and you have all this money. Yeah. Is what, what's the point? So true. Listen, I feel like we can talk for hours, but we're coming to the end of our time here. If people want to find out more, and I'm sure they will, because what you're providing here, Ryan, in terms of your Intentional Growth Academy and the work you do is so crucial and important. And, and to have people like you and your dad when you first come in. Not, listen, you were one of the, when I say lucky ones, I don't want to, even though you didn't know what you were aiming for, you worked hard and you make It was happen. lucky, man. It's even more, there's a lot I more to say. I want to say it, it yeah. just was, oh my God, it just showed up because I, I know that's not what you're saying. But the point is, 
there are a lot of people who actually are in your situation and trying to work hard to get out of it without this knowledge, and they don't get there. You got there, right? But sometimes they don't get there. So what you're teaching is absolutely crucial. So where can people find out more about all the various things you have? going on. The podcast is on all the podcast players. So intentional growth, you can have the in the show notes. Arcona.io is where the podcast is. And we have, and I'll put a link in, in your so you can put it in the show notes. The intentional growth starter kit is a great way. It's a free, but what I did is essentially I plucked out the top videos from the curriculum. So what is intentional growth? The first video of each of the five principles. And then actually I have a case study that I, where I project out the value of a company using all three financial statements in an Excel spreadsheet. So that way there's no hocus pocus. I didn't invent any of this stuff. I just organized in the way that makes sense. So that intentional growth starter kit in the podcast are the best way to just start. You're not going to figure it all out tomorrow. And I think that's the biggest thing. Like just understanding you, I think you, you said the word that is one of the most important parts. What's the mindset? What are you trying to solve? And what's the mindset? And the starter kit in the podcast should help people. Love that. Love that. So my final question of the podcast, Ryan, is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom around the world for all people from oppression to why I've been an entrepreneur and haven't had a boss for decades. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? I've gravitated to door, uh, towards Dan Sullivan's four freedoms from Strategic Coach, freedom of time, freedom of money, freedom of relationships, and freedom of purpose. Yes. And like it's multidimensional because it's not just time. Like I like my time is finite, but then I want to make sure I'm not dealing with people I don't want to deal with. And if I can learn and do the things I want to do, because I'm not constrained by it, then I can get to that. You mentioned impact at the very beginning. And I think what, that's like the, that's the where people want to get to, but we have to cover some of our bases before we get there. Love it. Love it. Love it. Ryan Tassin, thank you for being such a great guest on the Deal Quest podcast. Corey, thanks for having me. I appreciate the questions and I appreciate the enthusiasm. It's a lot of fun. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. The Deal Den is a place where entrepreneurs, high-level executives, and business leaders come together, support each other's growth and success, and share what's working best, as well as what challenges we are facing right now. You will get input not only from me, but from all of our members. We collaborate and serve each other. To join us, go to coreycupfer.com slash deal then. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.